0: Well, good morning. I want to welcome everyone to the Cato Institute. I am Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at the Cato Institute. Uh, I am also honored to be serving as the moderator on our first panel this morning. Uh, let me also uh, first thank and acknowledge my friends at the Institute for a Fiduciary Standard who are co sponsoring today's event. Newt Rosted, uh, the president of that institute, will be moderating today's second panel and <coughs> deserves a tremendous amount of credit for turning today's forum into reality. Um, To give you some sense of what our format's going to be for today's forum, the first panel will really be a broader introductory approach to the role of investment advisors in our financial system. Uh, Here at CADA, we take little for granted. Simply because the 1940 Investment Advisors Act has over 70 years behind it, we don't necessarily take that as a justification for its continued existence or its justification even at the time. Uh, In fact, those who know me, So I would suspect that my general bias is that if something was passed as part of the New Deal, then more likely than not, it was a mistake. (laughs)
1: Uh,
0: After the first panel provides us with both an introduction to the topic uh, and an evaluation of the status quo, the second panel will delve into current controversies in the regulation of investment advice, particularly those raised by Dodd-Frank. It might be helpful for those of us not in the business of providing investment advice to start with a few basic distinctions. The first is that between investment advisors and broker-dealers. Whereas a pure investment advisor only offers advice disconnected from any product, broker-dealers who may or may not also offer advice engage in either connecting buyers and sellers or selling financial products from their own inventory. The second concept to keep in mind throughout the the, uh, panel event is the difference between a fiduciary duty where one party is under the obligation to act in the best interest and benefit for another party. This contrasts with the obligation that a product or investment be suitable for the person buying said product. Historically, pure investment advisors have been held to fiduciary standard, whereas broker-dealers have been held to a standard of suitability. Now, here in Washington, we often have the tendency to believe that legal standards only come from either Congress or from the regulators. Uh, In the case of fiduciary standard, this could not be further from the truth. In fact, if you go back uh, to the Code of Hammurabi, Various trades, such as boatmen's builders, were all held liable for failures to perform their work in a manner that safeguarded their consumers. You can also find numerous examples of what I would consider a fiduciary standard in both the New and Old Testaments. So these concepts are very old, have had a long history. Uh, and just as we had financial disclosure before the existence of the SEC, we had long established but evolving common law standards for fiduciary duties placed upon investment advisors. The big change with the 1940 Act which is instead of an evolving and nimble common law, the SEC would now impose standards. And of course, it would not be the SEC if everyone involved was not required to be registered. Because we all know having the government keep a long list of names effectively deters wrongdoing. With that introduction, we are fortunate to have a very distinguished panel to kick off the discussion. This morning's first speaker will be Hester Pierce, currently a senior research fellow at George Mason University's Mercatus Center. I was fortunate enough to get to know Hester when both of us worked on the staff of the Senate Banking Committee, where Hester handled security issues through the Republican side of the committee. Uh, I'm not sure which of us was wiser where I left the committee before Dodd-Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Hester bravely remained, trying to bring some balance to that process. Prior to her service on Capitol Hill, Hester served as counsel to com- SEC Commissioner Paul Atkins. She also served on the staff as a staff attorney of the SEC's Division of Investment Management. She holds a law degree from Yale Law School. Next on our panel will be David Titsworth, Executive Director and Vice President of the Investment Advisors Association, which represents the interests of the investment advisory profession. David's also had a long career in government, including having served as Chief Counsel of the Department of Transportation, Associate Staff for the House Budget Committee, Senior Counsel to the House Subcommittee on Transportation, and directly prior to joining IAA, Counsel to the House Committee on Energy and Commerce, which I remind everyone at that time actually had jurisdiction over securities issues. David holds a law degree from the University of Kansas School of Law. Rounding out our first panel is Paul Sherman, who is an, insta- who is an attorney uh, with the Institute for Justice. And I'm not just saying this for a day, you my friends will tell you, I say it quite often that the Institute for Justice is probably my second favorite organization after Cato. They really do a tremendous amount of great work. Uh, Paul litigates cutting-edge constitutional issues uh, revolving free speech, the First Amendment, economic liberty, property rights, uh, and does this at both the federal and uh, state court levels. Much of Paul's work focuses on challenging state attempts to restrict entry to otherwise closed professions. He holds a law degree from George Washington University Law School. Uh, After the second panel, I will invite you all upstairs uh, to have lunch. With that, I want to turn over the podium to Esther.
1: Thanks, Mark, and um, I can tell you that if you had stayed around, Dodd-Frank might have been balanced. It's your fault that it's not. But, um, I'm glad that we're having this first panel today, and, and thank you all for being here for it. I think it's important to take a step back and look at um, whether the Investment Advisors Act has been successful at what it's, it's, it's doing. And I think that issue has been a little bit lost in the debate about whether brokers and dealers and investment advisors should all be held to the same standard. No one has really taken a step back and said, how has this worked for for, uh, investment advisors? So I'm I'm glad that we can do a little bit of that this morning. The Advisors Act, as Mark mentioned, was signed into law in 1940. It was actually the product of a compromise between the SEC, which had been looking at these issues they had done a study on these issues and, and the industry. Its purpose was, I quote, to protect the public from the frauds and misrepresentations of unscrupulous tipsters, touts and touts, and to safeguard the honest investment advisor against the stigma of activities these individuals of these individuals by making fraudulent practices of investment advisors unlawful. And so I think right there, um, you can see why the industry might have been interested in this as, to some extent, they were they were viewing it as a way to probably set up uh, barriers to entry um, and give themselves a competitive edge. Um, it, it would impose new costs. Um, but the goal, of course, was to prevent fraud. Um, The investment advisor, the term, is very broadly defined in the statute, and it's also been quite broadly interpreted by uh, the SEC and by courts. Um, It applies to any person engaged in the business of advising others directly or indirectly through publications. The advice has to be related to securities, and the person has to receive some form of compensation for that advice. There's been a lot of gray area on how, as Mark mentioned, broker-dealers. fit into this, they they can be both brokers and investment advisors. And um, I think we'll leave that mainly to the next panel to discuss. The Advisors Act requires advisors to register with the SEC or states. Dodd-Frank made some changes to this by increasing the um, the threshold below which advisors will stay with the states and above which they'll register with the SEC. And it also imposed a registration requirement on advisors to hedge funds and other private funds. Investment advisors don't have to pass a test or have any qualifications to be investment advisors under the Act. Um, And uh, many have viewed the Advisors Act as sort of a census statute that then is sort of principles-based regulation on top of of the census standard. Um, But I think that that's not really so. Investment advisors face a lot of substantive and quite prescriptive requirements, um, and it, that's partly due to the strange evolution of the case law. Uh, fiduciary duty, as, as Mark mentioned, governs investment advisors, but that word is nowhere to be found in the Advisors Act, and um, there was a case in the early 60s, Capital Gains, which mentioned the word fiduciary, but didn't say that the Advisors Act actually imposed a fiduciary duty. It recognized an existing fiduciary duty, is, is, is what the, the case said. Subsequent cases sort of built upon that and said, well, actually, there's there's a federal f- fiduciary duty coming from the Advisors Act. And the SEC, of course, has totally run with that. Um, as prof- Professor Arthur Levy has, has described it, between the SEC and, and the uh, courts, There's grown up a towering regulatory edifice for advisors. And this regulatory edifice is largely being built through non-APA means, um, often through settlements where the SEC will give a little hint of what it thinks advisors should or should not be doing. Um, And then there there are a lot of no action letters, which are issued by the staff, staff of the SEC as opposed to the commission. But again, people look to those for clues about what the staff thinks they should be doing. Um, investment advisors are subject to exams under the statute, um, and uh, the SEC's record in this area has been fairly spotty. Uh, in 2010, I think it was 9% of advisors that were examined. Um, so, if you're thinking you get examined every 10 years, that's that's not. Uh, not particularly often, Um, and the examinations are carried out by the Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations, which is the office that was responsible for um, going into Madoff and not finding the fraud. Um, Dodd-Frank actually asked that or or directed the SEC to integrate the examiners with the rulemaking divisions on the notion that It would make more sense for the examiners to be talking to the rule writers and to be one and so that they could have a coherent uniform policy. The SEC has, for some reason, resisted this change. Um, And then another problem with the examination program is that it's sort of a flavor of the month examination program. Whatever whatever issue the SEC feels under pressure to look into, that's the issue it focuses, focuses on. And it sort of loses track of everything else. So I think the flavor of the month for the upcoming years is going to be hedge funds and other private funds. Uh, Investment advisors have to make disclosures, um, which are publicly available. And then under Dodd-Frank, the new advisors to private funds will be making disclosures that are only available to the regulators. But these are fairly intense disclosures. So now that I've kind of laid out the background in pretty rough terms. the question is, is, is this good for investors? And, you know, I'm not sure what the answer to that question is. I'll just say that all of these requirements do impose costs, and those costs are, are not just eaten by the investment advisors. They're passed along to their, to their clients. Um, and the federal mandates are hard or impossible to waive, which means we end up with solutions that are one size fits all and may not be ideal for a particular client um, and a particular investment advisor. So there's, there's less flexibility. And um, the, the notion that, sig- that being registered actually signals something is an empty notion, because the SEC just doesn't have the time or energy to go in and examine every advisor. Um, they and and we wouldn't want the SEC to be big enough to be in every advisor all the time. so it doesn't it doesn't tell the investor anything that the SEC that the advisor is registered with the SEC um, and probably gives investors a false sense of confidence. And I think on this score that undermines another really important thing which is investor skepticism. It's something that I'm always, trying to encourage, the SEC um, always wants to encourage investor confidence, but I think it would be good if investors were a little less confident that their investment advisor is above board. I would rather have investors asking tough questions, paying close attention to what their advisors are telling them to do and to what's happening with with their investments. Um, So I actually am not sure that having this this implicit stamp of approval is such a good idea. Um, And then the other issue is ambiguity. I mean, advisors are really not sure what their obligations are, even after all these years. And that ambiguity breeds probably hyper-conservatism in some cases. And it probably scares other people out of the industry altogether. And I'm not sure that that's what we want. And then finally, I think with the new decision to bring hedge fund advisors into the same regime, we'll be diluting the ability of the SEC to even act as um, as a positive force with respect to advisors to retail investors. And if that's what we want, then I think we shouldn't have expanded the, the jurisdiction so that they now have to worry about advisors to people who are fully capable of of either watching their advisors themselves or hiring someone else to do it. So I'm looking forward to my co-panelists' um, comments and to discussing some of these issues with you all further. Thank you. Thank
0: you, Esther. Uh, David.
2: Good. <clears throat> Let me see if I can figure uh, I have Yes, you are it's right behind you. great uh, I prepared a few slides to help me get through this uh, little presentation this morning I appreciate the invitation to be here mark it's a pleasure to see Hester I know that I worked with her when she was uh, with Commissioner Atkins at the SEC and then on the hill um, so should investment advisors be regulated and if so how um, I just want to give you a little background from from my perspective and obviously I have this perspective of a person who uh, is very entrenched uh, in the investment advisor world. For the last 16 years, I've run a group called the Investment Advisor Association. We were actually formed in 1937 and participated in the debate that led to the uh, enactment of of, uh, the Investment Advisors Act in 1940. Maybe we can talk about it when we get to the Q&A a little bit, but actually what I understand is, I, I actually was not with the Advisory Association in 1937. I'm <laughs> some of you think I was, but we actually opposed federal regulation. That's kind of the dirty little secret. But when the handwriting was on the wall and the Senate was about to do something, uh, the story goes that some of our people, our, our forefathers, and and some <laughs> local attorneys hold up in a, a, a an undefined. Hotel in Washington D.C. with some pizza and beer, and wrote the Advisors Act and gave it to the Senate, and that's essentially what was passed. Whether or not that's uh, true or not, I guess we'll, we'll we'll have to wait and see. So, but I, uh, the Investment Advisor Association is one of hundreds of trade associations, nonprofit organizations in here, but we focus on the Advisors Act. We represent SEC registered investment advisors, so that's the context and. Our membership is over 500 firms that collectively manage more than 10 trillion dollars. So the history Hester talked a little bit about, but I think it's important to remember that the states were the first in the ball game in terms of regulating securities. So my home state of Kansas, 101 years ago, was the first entity to uh, enact what they call a blue sky law, a law that prohibited securities uh, fraud, basically. The the investment advisory profession actually came after that, depending on which history book you read. It was sometime in the 1915, 1919 range. Uh, it was different than brokerage practices at that time. I'll talk a little bit about that. And then you had the crash in 29 and four very major securities laws, the 33, 34, and 240 acts and the Investment Advisors Act. The law that we focus on is probably the least known of all those statutes. And then, of course, some of the other major uh, milestones along the way were ERISA in 1974, Sarbanes-Oxley, and, of course, Dodd-Frank. Uh, this is a quote from former SEC chairman Arthur Levitt. I actually think that the Advisors Act is, is uh, a very um, a, a pretty elegant uh, statutory framework. It's, 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 it's pretty light on details. Uh, it's not like reading the internal revenue code. Uh, you could actually sit down at night and read it. You might fall asleep once or twice, but it's, it's not uh, detailed rules, as, as Arthur Levitt says here. It prohibits fraud, holds advisors to rigorous fiduciary standards and you have two choices under the Act, you can get rid of your conflicts or you can uh, disclose them. I think that's not a bad uh, overview of what the Advisor Act uh, provides. Um, Hester mentioned a little bit broker-dealer investment advisors. There's been a fair amount of controversy. I know the second panel will, will talk about some of those issues, but The reason that the Advisors Act came around, I think, was because there were people who were doing different things in the securities business. And some of the differences, historically anyway, brokers had custody. Investment advisors generally did not. Brokers generally uh, provided non-discretionary advice. Advisors had discretionary authority, which goes a very key component to why there's a fiduciary duty. Commissions versus fees, suitability versus fiduciary duty, rules-based versus principles-based. Again, those are generalities. I think we could, if we get into the details, you could you know, take both sides of the argument. But uh, there were some some fairly marked differences. You also had this question of state versus federal regulation, and for the first several decades if you were a compliance officer working for an advisor firm, this was probably the big issue for you. And it was a problem that states had their own rules and regulations, and they could be inconsistent and duplicative and inefficient. Uh, It was actually uh, one of Mark's former bosses and Dean's former boss, uh, Senators uh, Graham and Dodd, who in 1996... Uh, came up with one solution to that problem and it was also related to the numbers uh, which is still one of the the relevant considerations today history repeating itself and you see the number of SEC registered advisors in the huge growth in the 80s and 90s to where you know you were basically not having any routine inspections at all and so the what congress came up with in 1996 was a split the baby kind of approach, and you, cre- the, the Congress created this bright line, $25 million in assets under management. If you were below that, you were considered to be a local entity, and the states would regulate, register you. If you were above that, uh, you implicated federal jurisdiction, interstate commerce, and the SEC had jurisdiction over you. And I would submit that that bright line um, has worked reasonably well. Um, and, of course, Hester mentioned it's also been raised to $100 million now, and I think the jury's out on whether or not that was a, a good choice by uh, the most recent Congress. At the same time, I think 1996 was really the beginning of modern investment advisor regulation, and so if you go back in these next couple of slides just give you an idea of how things have evolved. In 1996, as a as a matter of black letter law, if you're an investment advisor, you only had to have one written policy that was insider trading. Today, uh, and Hester mentioned this again, there is a whole panoply of regulations that you have to comply with: codes of ethics, privacy, the registration, of course, blah blah blah. Uh, it's it it's it's very comprehensive. In 1996. Um, uh, the SEC did not have investment advisor regulation on its on its organizational chart, for better or for worse. Uh, in 1996, they created a task force on investment advisors, and since then, it's grown uh, uh, dramatically. And so now, uh, the Division of Investment Management that regulates both advisors and mutual funds uh, is one of the, the largest divisions within the SEC. you got 450 examiners within OC that are dedicated to advisors and investment companies. And more recently, under uh, Chairman Shapiro, you have a, a separate asset management unit in the Division of Enforcement that has been very active the last few years. And maybe the, 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 the best regulation to, to talk about this comprehensive regulation is this compliance program rule that was adopted in 2003 uh, when Bill Donaldson was chairman of the SEC and it's actually again it's sort of uh, simple uh, uh, and, and from your point of view I guess it, it could be either elegant or very devious but uh, there are three basic requirements uh, it's 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 overarching it's it's comprehensive in that it says advisory firms have to adopt policies and procedures that are reasonably designed to prevent all securities violations <laughs> it's all encompassing it says advisory firms have to appoint a CCO a chief compliance officer who's going to be admit will administer those policies and procedures so it institutionalizes compliance in a way that's never been done before And it's never-ending. You have to review these policies and procedures every year. Uh, This is a quote from a a comment letter on Section 914 of Dodd-Frank that that a law firm here in town um, uh, uh, submitted to the SEC, and I think this is a nice uh, summary of where we're at. Basically, the advisor industry, for better or for worse, uh, it's it's uh, every aspect of an advisor's business is regulated. I think that's very true. Uh, this is a chart. I'm not going to go into details. This is, this is all on our website. It's from SEC data. But what this really shows is that there's been steady growth in the number of investment advisors over the past decade or so. It also shows that most investment advisors are small businesses, 90% of them have fewer than 50 employees. Um, Hester talked a little bit about the switch, which is the 25 to 100 million. Also, the new private fund advisors. I agree that's going to be a very uh, compelling issue in in the months and years ahead. Uh, The net result, just on a numerical fashion, is that the number of advisors will actually fall, uh, and has fallen this year, to about 10,500. Um, and I think with that, the, the final thing that I'll say uh, is just that the, the biggest issue that we feel like we're confronting right now is a question of whether or not there should be a self-regulatory organization for investment advisors. Finra used to be NASD. The SRO for broker-dealers is actively lobbying to expand its turf to investment advisors, and and they've uh, dedicated a lot of uh, time and resources to that uh, project. There was a a recent uh, bill introduced in the House, H.R. 4624, by the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, uh, Spencer Backus, and you see a few of my bullet points there. It's basically based on the Maloney Act of 1938 that created NASD, um, and in my opinion, it's it's clearly just opens the door for Finra to regulate thousands of investment advisors. We believe this is a very bad idea. Uh, we think that any SRO involves an inherent conflict of interest. You may not like federal regulation, but at least there's accountability and transparency. And in fact, I'd note, Mark, that the our friends at the Cato Institute filed a fantastic brief with the US Supreme Court last December in a case against FINRA, which ultimately was dismissed, uh, but which talked about um, uh, the problems with FINRA and uh, the absolute immunity combined with SRO structures that uh, uh, have resulted in abuses of power. So we think that there are better alternatives Uh, give the SEC the resources it needs, and the SEC should um, uh, improve its own inspection program. So with that, I appreciate it and look forward to the discussion. Well, this
3: presentation has been very educational for me so far, you may have noticed that conspicuously absent from my introduction was anything related to securities or broker-dealers or investment advisors or Dodd-Frank, and the very good reason for that is because I don't know anything about any of those topics, (laughs) um, which makes me, I think, a somewhat unusual panelist uh, for this event. The actual reason I'm here is not because of financial regulation per se, but because of the First Amendment, and it's exceedingly murky interaction with a host of business regulations, including regulation of the financial industry. What happens, for example, if the government tries to say who is allowed to give investment advice or what investment advice they can give? Advice, after all, is speech. And the First Amendment declares that the government shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. It would seem to have straightforward application. And yet the Supreme Court has never squarely addressed this question. And the lower courts are in disarray. The reason for this disarray is because of a conflict between two very well-established but fundamentally incompatible propositions of law. The first is that when the government regulates speech because of its content, courts strongly disfavor those regulations. They review them with what's called strict scrutiny. And in practice, this means that they are virtually per se unconstitutional. Now, On the other hand, at least since the New Deal, The Supreme Court has instructed lower courts that when they consider regulations of economics or property or business, they are not to apply strict scrutiny. They are to apply what's known as rational basis scrutiny, which is by far the most deferential standard of judicial review. Under rational basis scrutiny, the government only has to articulate that the law is rationally related to a legitimate government interest. It's not required to bring forward any evidence that there's an actual problem to be addressed or that the law actually addresses that problem. And in fact, if the government is incapable of coming up with a rational basis for the law, courts are both empowered and required to try and think one up for them. As a result, as you might imagine, economic regulations are routinely upheld by federal courts. And this has led to a proliferation of regulations, including most notably occupational licensure laws. Fifty years ago, only 5% of the American workforce needed a license from the government to work in their chosen occupation. Today, that number is about 30%, and it's continuing to grow. Now, for the most part, these two principles, the principle that laws that regulate speech are taken very seriously by courts and laws that regulate business are not particularly taken seriously by courts, have peacefully coexisted. And although groups like the Institute for Justice and the Cato Institute have questioned the propriety of having this hierarchy of rights. Judges have really not been troubled by it. The problem, however, is when people earn their living by speaking, suddenly you have a collision between these two bodies of law. And courts simply don't know what to do with it. And it raises one of the most important unanswered questions in First Amendment law, which is what limits, if any, does the First Amendment impose on the power of government to license occupations? As it happens, the only time in the last 30 years that the Supreme Court has even come close to addressing this question was in a case that involved financial services, a case from 1985 called Lowe versus Securities Exchange Commission. Lowe involved a gentleman named Christopher Lowe who who was an investment advisor, ran a corporation that offered investment advice. Uh, His registration was revoked after he was convicted of several crimes, including misappropriation of client funds, lying to cover up fraud and stealing money from a bank, but he continued to publish a newsletter offering investing advice, and the Securities Exchange Commission went after him, saying that he was acting as an unlicensed investment advisor. And this raised a really meaty and interesting First Amendment question, which is, can the government prohibit you from publishing a newsletter unless you have first gotten government permission, unless you're registered with them. And this was such an interesting First Amendment question that in classic Supreme Court fashion, the Supreme Court refused to answer it. And (laughs) instead what they did is they said (laughs) that Mr. Lowe fell within an exception to the law for uh, publishers of bona fide newspapers of general circulation. So as a result, he was allowed to continue publishing his newsletter. The SEC couldn't go after him for doing so. This resolution didn't satisfy Justice Byron White and two other justices on the Supreme Court. They thought that it stretched the exception too far because a newsletter devoted purely to financial advice was not a bona fide newspaper of general circulation. And so they felt the need to reach the First Amendment question of where regulation of a profession leaves off and a prohibition on speech begins. And this is what Justice White concluded, and I'll abbreviate his remarks somewhat. Justice White said, one who takes the affairs of a client personally in hand and purports to exercise judgment on behalf of the client in light of the client's individual needs and circumstances is properly viewed as engaging in the practice of a profession. So those types of people, Justice White argued, could be licensed without violating the First Amendment. But he went on to say, where the personal nexus between the professional and client does not exist, And a speaker does not purport to be exercising judgment on behalf of any particular individual with whom, uh, I'm sorry, with whose circumstances he is personally acquainted. The regulation ceases to function as a regulation of business, and it becomes a regulation of speech that's that is protected by the First Amendment. So, if you aren't exercising individualized judgment about someone uh, else's situation, in effect, if you aren't acting as a fiduciary, you can't be licensed consistent with the First Amendment. So Justice White argued. And applying this principle to the case at hand, he said, this is just a newsletter published to the world at large. It's protected by the First Amendment. The uh, the thing about Justice White's concurrence is because it's basically the only thing the Supreme Court has said about this, or that anyone on the Supreme Court has said about this collision between the First Amendment and occupational licensing, it's had <laughs> strong influence on lower courts, and consistent with kind of the hash that this area of law is, that influence has been both good and bad. The good news is that if you are publishing advice to the world at large, courts tend to find that that's protected. And a good example of this is a case that the Institute for Justice litigated called Tauscher versus Commodities Futures Trading Commission. Tauscher involved the regulation of commodities trading advisors, people who give advice on the buying and selling of commodities, I'm not particularly familiar with the commodities market. Um, I understand from the movie Trading Places that it consists primarily of pork bellies and gold, frozen concentrated orange juice, things like that. But in any event, our clients were three gentlemen who published a variety of advice in the form of books, newsletters, websites, and even software. But what tied all of their advice together was that it was impersonal. Once they wrote the book or the algorithm for the software, they didn't exercise any additional judgment on the individual's behalf. And what the court held in our case was that this was pure speech. It was fully protected by the First Amendment. The law operated as a content-based prior restraint on that speech. And it was unconstitutional. And in fact, this is the approach that courts have generally taken with advice published to the world at large. So as a result, anyone who wants to can write a book of legal advice or medical advice or psychological advice or investment advice or any other type of advice that might in some other circumstances be regulated, and it's pretty safe to say that the government can't go after you for doing that. And the bad news is sort of the flip side of the white rule, which is when you're outside of the area of advice published to the world at large, and you're looking at individualized advice. What has happened is that lower courts that are looking for clear rules that they can apply have latched on to the personal nexus component of Justice White's test. And they have used it to uphold the licensing of advice as diverse as accounting advice, psychological advice, even aesthetic advice about interior design. And somewhat troublingly, the courts have sort of jettisoned the notion Uh, that was present in Justice White's concurrence, that what we need to be concerned about is fiduciaries. Instead, they apply it to any type of individualized advice, regardless of the expert nature of the advice or whether there's a fiduciary relationship. The problem with doing so, and in fact, even the problem with regulating advice by fiduciaries, is that it conflicts with basically everything else that the U.S. Supreme Court has ever said about the First Amendment. Here are just a few things that the Supreme Court has said about the First Amendment in just the last two years. In 2010, in a case called Holder v. Humanitarian Law Project, the Supreme Court said that even expert legal advice is speech fully protected by the First Amendment. Now, Holder is a notable case because Holder involved a prohibition on giving legal advice to terrorist groups. But even though the law plainly implicated the state's legitimate interest in national security, the court still subjected it to normal First Amendment scrutiny. But maybe you think that Holder isn't an appropriate case to look at because it involved a ban on speech rather than just a regulation on speech. But that can't work because in 2011, in a case called IMS Health v. Sorrell, the Supreme Court said that burdens on speech are subject to exactly the same standard of review as bans on speech. So the mere fact that the government has chosen to regulate speech rather than to silence it can't affect the standard of review. Well, maybe you think it matters that experts are frequently paid for their speech. But this can't be it either, because again in Sorrel, and in fact many cases over the last few decades, the Supreme Court has said that the fact that someone is paid for their speech has no effect on whether it's protected by the First Amendment. And if you think about it, it really has to be this way. It couldn't be the case, for example, that a book is protected if you give it away, but it ceases to be protected if you sell it. And the same rule, at least applying the Supreme Court statements, should apply to the spoken word. Well, maybe it's the case that expert advice is simply outside the First Amendment, that is not contemplated by the phrase freedom of speech. That also can't be the rule, because in 2010, in a case called United States versus Stevens, The Supreme Court said that speech may only be declared outside the scope of the First Amendment on the basis of historical evidence that it has, like defamation or obscenity or child pornography, been considered traditionally outside the scope of the First Amendment. Now, occupational licensing laws are a creature of 20th century law, and for the vast majority of occupations, I would say including investment advice, that kind of historical showing, stretching back to the founding, simply can't be made. <clears throat> now, these holdings of the U.S. Supreme Court are binding on lower courts, and to the extent that they conflict with Justice White's concurrence in Lowe v. SEC, which has never been adopted by the U.S. Supreme Court and has never been endorsed at the Supreme Court level by anyone other than the three justices who signed on onto it, these decisions supersede Low. The trick, of course, is convincing lower courts of this. And that's something that the Institute for Justice is working very hard on. In a number of cases, we've brought and we plan to bring involving mm-hmm. advice as diverse as dietary advice, aesthetic advice about interior design, makeup artistry instruction, yoga teaching instruction, and a variety of other cases. But it's also something that I hope those of you who work more closely with the financial services industry will keep in mind, because this is a fight worth having. The regulation of expert advice doesn't just implicate the rights of speakers, it implicates the rights of listeners. We live in a complicated world and none of us can be experts on everything, which is why all of us in our day-to-day lives search for people who we believe have superior information and can help us navigate the challenges we face every day. The government can certainly prohibit those people from fraudulently misrepresenting their credentials, but what it shouldn't do and what it mustn't do is usurp our decisions as listeners, who we want to consider before we make the decisions we make in our daily lives. Now, if that sounds like a radical position, I want to quote one more Supreme Court decision from 2010. When the government seeks to use its full power, including the criminal law, to command where a person may get his or her information or what distrusted source he or she may not hear, it uses censorship to control thought. This is unlawful. The First Amendment confirms the freedom to think for ourselves. That's from Justice Kennedy's 2010 opinion in Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission. He was talking, of course, about the political marketplace, but I would submit to you that in our day-to-day lives for the average American, the ability to seek out advice on our finances is far more important than the ability to seek out advice on political matters, and it is no less deserving of robust First Amendment protection. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Paul. I mean, that was uh, you know, certainly a, a good reminder. I, I think back to my seven years in the Banking Committee, and maybe Hester has a different experience, but, uh, Unfortunately, I can't remember once where we questioned the constitutionality of anything we did. Uh, and I think it's more important to remind us, ourselves every day that to step outside of whatever small area we work in and, and ask ourselves whether it is constitutionally consistent. Um, with that, uh, let me see if there are questions. If not, I've got a few. But let, let me start with uh, I think one of the more interesting questions to me in terms of the sort of evolution of standards for investment brokers is this issue of the common law courts versus, you know, statutory or statutory also sort of constitutional framework. My read of it would be, for instance, you could have constitutional constraints on the free speech issues, but those would not necessarily stop a common law tradition from imposing the same sort of duties and judge-made law versus statutory. So to some extent, you know, I would ask, have we lost something by trying to go more of a statutory route uh, instead of having this come through a common-law route?
3: I I think that that's probably right. One of the things you could look at, for example, is the regulation of malpractice, which can be based entirely on the rendering of incompetent advice. But what distinguishes that from the statutory regulation is the statutory regulation is prophylactic. It stops people from speaking in the first place. Whereas a common law rule, like something against uh, malpractice, only comes into play when someone has actually given advice in a way that has harmed people. So it's a rule that would certainly allow more speech than kind of the front loading registration requirements. <laughs>
2: mark can I? yes please uh, i this is maybe like putting my foot in my mouth uh, which i'm famous you, you for you can always take it back out yeah well yeah not always um but i it's interesting and paul i thought it was really interesting to hear what you're talking about i guess from where i sit some people have talked they they don't use the investment Advisors act as like the prime example of trying to keep people out of the business. And in fact, the exact opposite question has been raised that, uh, unlike broker-dealers, for example, who have to have what's called a Series 7 examination administered by our good friends at FINRA, who make millions of dollars off that every year, <laughs> um, they broker-dealers have to have certain qualifications. You or I, actually, and I know nothing about investing, um, and I'm not a securities law expert either, but we could hang out our shingles as investment advisors today. Um, Now, whether or not anybody would entrust their money to me or you remains to be seen. I've found that a lot of our uh, our members are highly well-educated people. They have MBAs, they have CFAs, they have... CFPs, other um, you know uh, schooling and and designations and all of that, uh, but it's it's actually the, the people have questioned whether the Investment Advisors Act or whether the regulators have failed to impose a high enough uh, barrier, I guess, to let you know bad people like me into the business who know nothing about it. So I don't know whether. Um that uh, i'm i 'm not going to argue the question i I think i I can see both sides of it to me. The question has always been, well, how do you actually construct a test that will actually be meaningful in terms of the wide array of activities that investment advisors engage in um, and how can you make sure that that test is so good? that an investor can have some confidence that it actually means something.
3: Well, I I think there's certainly a range of ways that the government can try to regulate occupations. And it can go from pure registration all the way to full-blown licensure, where you have to show that you've met certain requirements. An example of this, I alluded several times to interior design. In Florida, if you want to be an interior designer, you have to have a combined six years of education and experience. And this is just to render aesthetic opinions about commercial spaces. That's clearly more burdensome than just having to file a form with the government saying that uh, you you want to engage in this occupation. And, And certainly, the extent of the burden would be relevant to the judicial review. And I think one of the things to keep in mind is the mere fact that these regulations should be subject to some kind of First Amendment scrutiny doesn't mean that all of them will be held unconstitutional. What has to happen is the government has to come forward with actual evidence that there's a real problem that it's concerned about, that the law will mitigate that problem, and that the burden is no more extensive than necessary to mitigate that problem. So, of course, the extent of the regulation, whether it's registration or licensure, is going to be relevant to what is essentially that factual question. Mm-hmm. But the government should still have to make that showing. It shouldn't be able to escape it entirely. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would just argue that registration, as the SEC has conceived it and implemented it, is certainly a burden. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I think most, David, you probably know better than I, but I think most investment advisors would agree with that. Um, and I think the question of whether there should be licensing requirements or some sort of standards for advisors, Um, you know, there's no reason why I can't, when you put up your shingle, I can't go and say, David, what experience do you have? And you can tell me, well, you know, I don't have any and then I can make my decision about whether I think you've got great intuition and I can go with you.
3: I, I would point out that relatedly there would be no First Amendment problem with the government setting up a voluntary system of certification. The government could, for example, say, people who have this set of requirements that we think are important can sign up with us, demonstrate that they meet these requirements, and then they will have the exclusive right to use a government-conferred credential. And anyone else who uses that credential is fraudulently misrepresenting the credentials that they have. That doesn't impose any burden on anyone's First Amendment rights, and it leaves it up to the person who is seeking out investment advice to decide whether or not that credential is something that they really care about.
1: I guess I would pretty strongly object to that kind of a system as well. And, and the reason is that, again, the SEC has tried that with credit rating agencies um, to great destruction for all of us. Um, Again, I don't see why the private market couldn't figure out a way to set up that kind of signaling. And indeed, I think they have. I mean, there are designations that you can get that make people more likely to think that you're actually going to be able to be a good investment advisor.
3: Yeah, and, and I should point out from a libertarian perspective, I am all for having the private market do this. I'm merely addressing the question of whether it would raise a First Amendment concern. Okay. Which mm-hmm. I just, the
1: SEC hears up. ideas like this, and they're, they're going to be writing them down. That's all. I'm just <laughs> Not attribute this idea stuff. to
3: me or the Institute for Justice. <laughs>
0: well, I, I think you raise another potential issue, which is the more you go th- toward uh, educational requirements and more you go toward licensing, are you encouraging herding and investment advice? Mm -hmm. You know, and and certainly to me, you know, I look at when and Hester, and this is one of the great points I think she made, which was I think we need to encourage more skepticism. You know, if if there was one characteristic of the financial crisis, I would say a lack of due diligence on lots of parties, parts, not just uh, investors and lenders, uh, borrowers and such. But how do you encourage that sort of skepticism? But how do you encourage a diversity of investment strategies? Um, because, obviously, even if we're all an in investment strategy that might be great for me, if everybody else is sit- following that investment strategy and there's a shock to that particular asset class, then something that would not be systemic becomes systemic. So, uh, again, that sort of hurting of behavior, uh, I think, is an important potentiality of going too far down this path. Let me raise a, a sort of maybe the other side of it. And, and uh, there certainly are costly barriers to entry. Uh, But let's ask about the benefit side of it. Uh, Hester raised the issue that, you know, you've got this certification via registration that I think investors are potentially looking at that as a seal of approval when there's a very, let's say, irregular examination period. So in a sense, do we run the risk of investors essentially being fooled by some sort of uh, certification that's not really any substance behind it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a real problem, and and it was illustrated to me most strongly after the Madoff and Stanford incidents. Um, You know, people came to us and said, why didn't the SEC do its job? Why weren't they watching over this guy? Why didn't they check this guy out? With the assumption that every investment advisor, you know, Madoff was actually a broker-dealer for most of the duration of the fraud, but... They're, the assumption that P, that regular people have is that the SEC is checking all of these guys to make sure they're qualified to do what they're doing, and and they're they're resting easy that their job is being taken care of by by the SEC.
2: Well, I'd certainly uh, point out number one, uh, my favorite issue, I guess, uh, both Madoff and Stanford cases that, that you you both uh, allude to. Um, that was a failure of self-regulation first and foremost. Um, and if you don't believe me, talk to Harry Markopolos, the erstwhile Madoff whistleblower who testified in in the House and was asked, "Did you ever think about taking your complaints to NASD instead of SEC?" No. Why? because they're corrupt and incompetent. They're, they're a puppet of the industry.
0: David, tell us what you really
2: think. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that, that's what Harry Marco Polo said, not me. Um, so, but I think th- this, I am not an apologist for the SEC. Uh, in the context of, of this debate um, and, and um, what some of the issues that have been raised, I happen to think that regulation of investment advisors is appropriate. Um, the, you're dealing with people's personal wealth you're dealing with their money this is a uh, and and there's a position of an of trust uh, that is created when somebody hands you their account and says I want you to manage this and especially when you have discretion uh, over those investment decisions, they are relying on your expertise and your judgment. I think there is an interest from the government perspective to have some re- some regulation and also just the sheer amount of wealth that is uh, placed in, in the hands of investment advisors. So to me, it's not should investment advisors be regulated, but how should they be regulated? And I think You know, if we wanted to get down and dirty and talk about specific regulations, um, specific aspects of the Investment Advisors Act, there's good and bad and ugly. Um, And I certainly do not think that all the regulations that the SEC has for investment advisors are appropriate or that they are protective of investors. Uh, Sometimes they have very perverse consequences, but those are the kinds of regulatory arguments that uh, I suppose we engage in all the time.
3: I I think that raises an important point and something to keep in mind is that many regulated occupations consist of speech elements and non-speech elements. And when I talk about the First Amendment protection, I'm applying it to the speech elements of the occupation. So to the extent that someone is merely giving advice about investing, I think that that should be protected, whether they give it in the form of a newsletter or whether they give it in a face-to-face conversation. I don't think that the medium should make a difference. But actually, trading someone's portfolio is not a speech act. That's just selling a product. Um, similarly, you know, uh, performing surgery, even though doctors sometimes give advice, performing surgery is not a form of advice. It's an action that's outside the scope of the First Amendment. And the government can regulate those actions without offending the First Amendment. They may offend other provisions of the Constitution, <laughs> but not the First Amendment.
0: Let me raise maybe what I but I think is a very fundamental broader issue. I, mean, I, I worked on the banking committee when Sarbanes-Oxley was passed and certainly I remember during the time and it felt like I heard some of the same things in Dodd-Frank and certainly one goes back throughout history and feels like you hear these same arguments made on the floor of the House and Senate, which is we need to restore confidence. Ian, you know, I look at it as the economist, and I recognize I'm surrounded by lawyers on this panel. But um, you know, it sounds like to me also, it's almost a sort of a Keynesian animal spirits argument for regulation, which is, you know, forget that maybe uh, security values should reflect fundamentals, or that house values should reflect fundamentals. They should reflect our animal enthusiasm for going out and buying and flipping financial products. Uh, it just seems like to me that what we're trying to sell the public on is everything 's okay it 's safe to go out and buy again, and I just question whether are we encouraging overconfidence in a, in a way that has been destructive to our economy and to investors and maybe it fits in again with the skepticism but so I ask as a uh, not a student of securities law, um, is there a degree of truth to this that what we 're ultimately been trying to achieve through statute and regulation is essentially. Don't worry about it. It's safe to go invest. You don't really need to do a lot of due diligence. In that, this will drive the markets. I mean, is there an animal spirits element to this?
2: I, I would certainly hope that 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 is not what the SEC or the federal government is is doing out there at all. I don't know if there are any SEC people in the audience here, but um, I think you know just in terms of registration as an investment advisor, an investment advisor is not supposed to use that SEC registration any way to denote uh, competence or skill or judgment or experience or expertise or any of those things. And the SEC has uh, uh, brought cases in the past where uh, people have wrongfully used that SEC uh, registration. It's just, it's, its it was started out in 1940 as a census item, as, as Hester uh, accurately portrayed. So, but in terms of investor confidence, and I guess, you know, I, I think um, maybe the second panel will talk about it, but investor education could be a key. And I don't know, Mark or Paul or Hester, whether any of you think the SEC should be out there saying beware. I think there are all sorts of admonitions that the SEC regularly proclaims about investors, you need to have a better understanding of what's going on. Here are questions you can ask when you're going to hire an investment advisor or a broker dealer or another financial services professional. So um, I guess I don't see that the SEC in particular is going out there and 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 trying to you know tell investors everything's okay just give your money to whomever and everything's fine. I guess it's a question I'm
0: more raising in context of the, the of the congressional debates. I mean, you know, one thinks of the the 33 and 34 act as sort of you know in the aftermath of the 29 bubble, one thinks of um, you know I mean Would Sarbanes-Oxley have happened had not been for the dot-com bubble? I mean, so to to me, having sat on the Hill and listened to the congressional debates, which I emphasize are very different than the debates you may have within the SEC, is there does seem to me this element of we just had a big bubble burst. Our objective should be how do we create the bubble? (laughs) And, and, Mm -hmm. And again, if you need to instill some sort of confidence by passing a piece of legislation that says now the markets are safe to go back in and gamble again, it, it, it again seems like to me that the at least congressional intent of many of these things is to instill. Uh, I mean, I would I haven't done this, but I would suggest go back and look at the floor debates for sarbanes Oxley and just Google how many times people say confidence. Mm-hmm. It, it, it tends to be that that seems to be the ultimate objective uh, of much of this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a mantra that gets repeated over and over again. Investor confidence is is used by the SEC to justify its rules instead of doing a, a an economic analysis they just say well we're trying to improve investor confidence um but i think it's important to distinguish because you do want to have investor confidence in the that there's rule of law in the markets and that people know what to expect and that they're not going to um they're not going to give money to someone and the person's often in, in 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 the caribbean uh, spending their money and that they'll never have any any recourse. So I think you do need to have r- rules that govern people's activities. But then coupled with that, there needs to be the notion that, and, and the SEC does do some of this, which is tell people to go and look for red flags and and, and open their eyes. But I think sometimes the, the emphasis on investor confidence does flow into what, what you're saying, which is, yeah, I mean, you should just happily invest in, in anything that you see that, that looks, looks interesting without asking any questions.
0: Well, at least a way an economist might look at it. Um, I don't think we've dominated the discussion here, so question it. And, and could please identify yourself. As, and if you could wait for the microphone as well. Thank you.
4: Um, I'm Leighton Roper. I run a small uh, investment advisory firm. Uh, net Worth Advisory Services. I I guess as I listened to the discussion uh, and I uh, particularly because I'm a small outfit, I w- was very interested in hearing, uh, you know, the raising of the issues, and the basic issues that are uh, I think are at the heart of the matter are on, let's say, in the uh, uh, in the industry side is how in the world does a regulatory structure have anything to do with ensuring ethical behavior, avoiding conflicts of interest, uh, promoting integrity in the way that people act, which I think were at the heart of most of the problems we've experienced. And the other side of the equation, which I think you've touched on, is what is the level of understanding in the broad general public about our economic system? Uh, we uh, probably nobody goes through school that they aren't you know beaten over the head about our political system but there's virtually nothing transmitted about how our economic system operates and yet the purpose of all the education is to go and get a job and earn money which you then accumulate presumably to take the place of uh, you know having to work uh, till you're a hundred years old and and so the the Understanding of our economic system and its manifestations, which are you know unique, certainly wonderful in this country, um, you know, have to be more broadly understood and transmitted to the general public. And you know, really, that's what the role of the investment advisor is. But um, um, or the investment manager, I, w- I want to say, because there are a lot of people who give advice, but it's different to manage money. So I think this fiduciary standard. Uh, uh, issue is absolutely crucial and dead center to all of this discussion, and I understand, you know, the the, the speech issues, uh, but it's how people behave that's at the heart of it. That's uh, I, I clearly don't know all the answers, and there's a lot more to be said about it. Uh, but that's that's what I'm trying to do is figure out, uh, you know, what is all this. Uh, harassment that we go through as advisors in order to jump through these hoops and what do they have to do with the fundamental results that come out of it
2: I'll, I'll, I think you raised some great points um, the SEC just came out with a, a report on um, investor uh, competence or the, the need for greater education and um, I don't think anybody will be shocked to learn that they uh, came up with the conclusion that you say. Pe- American investors need uh, uh, a lot more knowledge about just the basics out there, and so I think that's a fundamental issue. Um, investment advisors, I think we we can help in that. The government can help in that. Uh, all of us can help to... Um, uh, make that more of a priority going forward, but that that's uh, you know I, I certainly can't disagree with your basic um, notion that that uh, investors need to understand a lot more. in terms of regulation and and again, from where I sit, I think, The fundamentals of investment advisor regulation that you register with the Securities and Exchange Commission, a governmental entity that's accountable to Congress and the public, subject to Freedom of Information Act and APA rulemakings and and all of that. I, I think the basic statutory scheme is sound, but I'm 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 very acutely aware of small businesses and the degree of regulation and whether or not there's been over regulation, as I may have just hinted at in in my short presentation you know since 1996 the number and the amount of the complexity of advisor regulations has proliferated dramatically so i understand that um i think you have to go in and look at every regulation but also cumulatively you're just saying the weight of it is just enormous for a small firm and i i i uh, empathize with that
3: yeah, I, I can also empathize with that concern, and it gets to something that I talked about a little earlier in my presentation, which is this idea of the rational basis test, which is that when it comes to economic and business regulations, the Supreme Court has essentially said that courts are not to care um, about the extent of the burden or whether it actually accomplishes what Congress set out to accomplish. Uh, I think that's a, a terrible way to make policy, and one of the things that we promote at the Institute for Justice is a more engaged judiciary that would actually require the government to come forward with some kind of evidence to justify the hoops that it imposes on businesses in in a variety of areas. Mr. Gwin,
1: no, I mean I think that the point is is right that unfortunately there's a lot of time and effort spent on complying with requirements that really don't go to the heart of the issue and um, so i think this is a great opportunity this debate over broker dealer standards and investment advisor standards it's a great opportunity to revisit these issues and say okay what what standards are really the core standards and let's dump the ones that are not
0: now, let me say before we get to the next question, as, as an economist, I absolutely fully agree that economic literacy in this country is not what it could be. I'll also say, unfortunately, uh, economic literacy among uh, Congress and policymakers is not what it could be either. So, uh, But, you know, I think one of the things that the question is maybe not so much the level of regulation, but to me, part of the question you raise, which I think we've tried to touch upon, is does registration in and of itself – change behavior in terms of whether there's a conflict of interest, whether there's you're carrying out duties to your clients or not. It's not clear to me that simply having your name on a list somewhere and somebody coming through every 10 to 15 years is actually going to change your behavior much. Um, I would say to some extent, uh, you know, maybe I'll have to watch myself too much given that I'm the economist surrounded by three lawyers. Um, but I think some of this has been driven by a legalistic perspective of let's check the box rather than be informed by how do you try to structure the appropriate incentives for people to behave. Uh, and we had a question over here in the, again, wait
5: for the mic and identify yourself. Hi, I'm Mark Sheff with Investment News. I have a question for David and anyone else on the panel who'd like to answer it. Uh, Congress went into recess last week and the, uh, the SRO bill still hasn't moved anywhere. Uh, is it safe to say that that, that, that bill is dead for this year and uh, uh, secondly you must be pleased about that this represents a a victory only you know the fact that it only got a uh, committee hearing what's your uh, legislative strategy for 2013 given that it almost certainly will reappear
2: (laughs) Uh, I think uh, that it is probable that that uh, HR 4624, the Spencer Backus SRO bill, is dead. Uh, I guess until the 112th Congress actually adjourns, signee die. None of us are safe. So, I guess with that one caveat, as an attorney, I'll I'll put that out there. But it does appear that we've dodged that bullet for now. I expect the issue um, is not dead at all, and that the 113th Congress. Uh, and uh, the next SEC, I think there will probably be fairly significant changes in the composition of the SEC in the United States Congress and perhaps the White House that will affect uh, this issue. So, in terms of strategy, we need to see what happens November 6th before I can really give you much of an intelligent answer. But I do expect the issue to uh, go forward again.
0: David, you're not, you're not going to attribute the failure of the bill to move to your just excellent lobbying <laughs> strategy? Uh, I mean, it should be noted that you know certainly all indicators are that the chairmanship of House Financial Services will change. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't think we know for sure who that will be or what their position will be on this bill. Uh, and certainly whatever the direction of the SEC, I mean, I look at this as partly a reaction to the SEC's action and reaction to Dodd-Frank. You know, certainly one outcome would be the status quo. Yeah, I
1: mean, I... I- I think that the idea of self-regulation, as it's called, which I think is actually not not an appropriate term, uh, Finra is basically a governmental entity without the protections that normally go with governmental regulators. But I think that there's going there there the the interest in that idea will continue because the SEC is clearly so overwhelmed, and even though they've the number of advisors as David pointed out has, has dropped. Um, I think the complexity of some of the advisors that it's now overseeing will uh, maybe pose some challenges. So we'll see what happens.
0: Okay. Do we, um, over here on the corner?
5: I'm Al Scatman, I'm an intern at the U.S. Senate. I had a question regarding something that David said, um, that the question should not be whether or not uh, investment advisors should be regulated, but how they should be regulated. And I guess the question that I have is um, if you're going to have government organizations uh, regulate these entities, how is that better than having market regulation? Because um, I'm obviously limited in experience, but being on Capitol Hill, it doesn't seem to me that there's any federal agency whatsoever that has a genuine profit-loss motive. So um, it seems to me that the approach on Capitol Hill is always that if something fails or doesn't work properly, the problem is that it didn't get enough money. So um, I guess that's just what I'm curious about is how could you ever have a situation where the SEC or any other organization could really regulate these entities effectively without having that genuine profit-loss motive?
2: Sure. Um, good question. I've, I think that there is a legitimate interest um, and that the market does not always regulate itself. Uh, I don't think there's any evidence that the market has gone out there and rooted out fraudulent activity as well as a, a, a government uh, regulator can and should. Does the SEC in all cases uh, root out that fraud? Absolutely not. It's had some massive and spectacular failures. Uh, but at least uh, the, the basic um, uh, missions of the SEC to protect investors, to maintain fair and orderly markets, uh, to promote capital formation, those are the right missions, I think. And the question is, how do you make sure that the SEC does as good a job as it can. And the Congress has some role in that. And I think we in the public have some role in that as well. It's not perfect, I'll I'll grant you that.
0: Well, with that, let me wrap it up by saying that, you know, the only system that will eliminate all fraud is a system that eliminates all activity. You know, and maybe it takes an economist to say the optimal amount of fraud is unlikely to be zero. Uh, And so, again, I don't expect the markets to eliminate our fraud, nor I expect all the SEC to eliminate fraud. So what we're going to do for a little bit is take a quick break um, so that you can go get some water, go to the restroom, and we will set up for the second panel, and I hope to see everybody back here and here in a few minutes.